Please remain standing as we read our sermon scripture and as Pastor Andrew continues our series in Ephesians. God's word is given to us this morning from Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of our Lord. Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you so much uh, for your word. Uh, the special gift that it is, and, uh, and we acknowledge that combination with the leading of your Holy Spirit. And so we lean into that this morning, and we just pray that your Spirit will illumine Pastor Andrew's heart as he preaches and teaches your word to us, uh, give him clarity of mind and speech. And uh, Lord, we're grateful that his work before this morning uh, is engaging both his mind and his heart. And, uh, and likewise, Lord, we pray that you would do that in us this morning and that we would receive your word according to your purposes and with faith. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder how many of you have ever had the opportunity or the experience of being prayed over. Um, maybe you were going through a difficult time and there was a group of people, uh, maybe the elders of the church, uh, came around, prayed for you. Um, maybe you just have a group of friends and you get together on a regular uh, basis and, and you pray for one another, you just share and they focus on you and, and pray for you and for the things that you're experiencing. It's a very powerful time when somebody like listens to you, uh, hears what is at the bottom of some of your concerns, and, and they, they pray for you. Start this way because that is, in a very real sense, what we're getting here from the Apostle Paul. We've been in this letter to the Ephesians, and you remember we had the opening greeting, and then in verses 3 to 14, we had this long, euphoric sentence where, where Paul is just praising the, the glories of God. 
uh, all of the blessings that uh, flow from God. In, in Hebrew, it's the, the barakah, the, the blessings that flow from God, who He is, how they have uh, transformed the, the cosmos and, and now are flowing to us. Uh, and Paul here then pauses, and he starts another long sentence, and you actually get a sense of that here in, in verses 15 to, I think, 22, you get all one sentence, just phrase after phrase, but the whole thing is another long sentence, not quite as long as the first one, but another long sentence in which Paul is praying for He's praying for the Ephesians. We've said that this was probably a circular letter, so he's praying for the Christians throughout the region as they are receiving this letter. And by extension, he is praying for us. Uh, so if you've never had that experience, you can now experience that as the Apostle Paul himself prays for us. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the contents of that prayer and see what it is that has, has moved the apostle's heart that he would pray for you and for me, that he would pray for the church, because surely those things that move his heart are important. Uh, they're important for us as we seek to live out this prayer uh, that the apostle is praying for us. The first thing you notice that he's praying for us is exactly what we sang earlier this morning, that the eyes of our heart would be open. Uh, that little chorus comes right out of uh, Ephesians chapter 1. We see the prayer that the eyes of our heart would be open, that we would see the immeasurable greatness of God, we would see Him high and lifted up. Paul is continuing in the vein of all of the things that he's talked about. You see uh, throughout here, particularly in verses 18 and 19, he's talking about the hope that we have. He's talking about the riches of his inheritance. He's talking about the power and majesty of Christ. Those were all themes that he had been uh, praising and blessing in verses 3 to 14. But now his prayer is that we would see them. He has been captivated by these things. He has uh, been changed, uh, transformed. His heart is euphoric. And, and his prayer is that it wouldn't be just him alone that has been changed by these things, but that his listeners, his readers, that, that we would be changed. But he knows, he knows in order for that to happen, the eyes of our heart have to be open. Now, what, is, what does he mean by that? I think there are a couple of things, some I'll say more positively and, and some uh, negatively, not in a bad way, but just by uh, reverse of positive, whatever that means. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, on the one hand, he's saying that we, we have this seed of our being, and that's what the heart is, for Paul. It's not just your emotions. He's not just saying that you would be inflamed emotionally. It's not less than that, but it, it's more than that. Uh, it, it's your emotions. It's your intellect. It's your, uh, it's your will. All of these things that make us up to be a person, Paul is saying, I want you to capture 
the, the greatness of who Christ is and what he has done and, and who the Father is and the ministry of the Spirit. I want you to capture all of this uh, at, at the very core of who you are. But in order to do that, the, this, the, the eyes of your heart, so your ability to grasp this, needs to be open. And, and what he's saying by extension, this is what I meant by the negative part, is that we have obstacles. We have obstacles that prevent us from seeing. We have uh, what you might call pain obstacles. We, we are in the midst of a world and we have things that press in on us that, uh, that make us sad, that make us worried, that make us anxious. And all of these things prevent us from seeing the truth of who God is. Uh, we have uh, distractions, uh, especially in, in this day and age. I mean, we can get distracted by any number of things uh, as we can read and listen and look, look and just the, the noise of, of our culture around us can, can keep us from listening, from the eyes of our hearts being able to see who God is. We sometimes have a, a lack of will uh, that, that prevents us, that blocks us, that hinders us from seeing. I mean, we're, we're frankly, we're, we're not looking. We're, we're so uh, content or we're so caught up in the things that are in front of us that we just don't spend the time looking for God, look, listening for His voice. Or perhaps uh, even, I, I love how in verse 21, Paul talks about not only in this age, but also in the age to come, we just get so temporally bound, you know, by all the things that are going on right now, that we don't have the ability to step back and to gain a perspective, not only of, of what is happening now, but what, what has been happening throughout the course of history? You know, what has God done in the past? What are the promises for the future? And, and this blocks, this hinders our ability to see and appreciate who God is uh, overall. And Paul recognizes that the people that lived in Ephesus in the first century, we've talked about this, it's a secular society, uh, full of idols, full of all kinds of things that would distract and hinder them. Uh, they have pain points as they're under Roman oppression, seeking to, uh, to live and find their way and all of these things. He says, I, I, I'm praying first of all that, that God would break through all of that and that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to see. And that's Paul's prayer for you this morning. This is the Spirit's prayer. Uh, first and foremost, uh, that we would be able to see. And what an encouragement this is. You know, somebody commented to me, you seem very optimistic lately uh, as you've been preaching through. You can't help but be optimistic in Ephesians chapter 1. I mean, the, the whole premise of this is this is a feast to be enjoyed. Paul is, is rolling out like all of the great truths and doctrines of the Christian faith. I mean, this prayer here is incredibly forward-thinking and optimistic, and, and that is what Paul is inviting us to. He's saying, may your eyes be open 
the eyes of your heart, your whole being be engaged to see all of the, the glory that is filling the heavens and the earth uh, through our God. And that's where we go next. Uh, he really focuses here on two things, and you get a sense of it in verses 15. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you. These are the, the two themes now that will uh, continue to push forward throughout the book of Ephesians. It is a faith, uh, a, uh, uh, we talked about this last week, you know, you have heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation. There are these truths, there are this collection of doctrines, uh, there is all of this uh, stuff that is true about who Jesus is, that has changed the world that we live in. So that's the first thing that Paul wants us to grasp. And, and then secondly, flowing out of it is this movement, this love for all the saints. And so we have those two things here. Uh, we have the Savior's supremacy and the fullness of the church. The Savior's supremacy is, uh, is absolutely, first and foremost, part of what Ephesians is about. One writer has talked about Ephesians as, a, as triumph literature, uh, the type of thing that would uh, a king or a ruling king would, would use to talk about their victory and, and how it has changed the world. So this is that type of, of literature that Paul is talking about here, and, and he jumps right into it in this passage where we are. In verse 20, he talks about the, the greatness of the power towards us, verse 19, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. So here he is saying, Jesus Christ is the victor. Over all that you see, both temporal uh, as well as the unseen forces in the world, all of the physical, all of the spiritual, over every single realm that is in existence, Jesus Christ is the victor. We saw that earlier as he talked about how he ransomed us uh, by his blood. Now Paul finishes that thought. He says he raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. And this is the central message of the Christian gospel, that Jesus Christ came into the world in order to die in the place of sinners, and, and then, not only that, but to be raised again uh, where he is seated at the right hand of God bodily, very important, uh, and he is reigning and ruling throughout all of the universe, uh, throughout all of time. And Paul just piles then uh, phrase upon phrase to talk about the supremacy of Jesus' rule. Far above all, rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Uh, here are superlatives to talk about the reign of Jesus. He, he's talking about there, there's nothing. And again, think about first century Roman Empire. You had the sense that Rome was powerful. 
Rome had conquered the then-known world. Rome was everywhere. You had the images of Caesar on every coin and in every opera house and bath that you went into. Caesar was everywhere. And if you lived in the Roman Empire and they said to you, who is in charge? You would say, well, it's Caesar. You know, I, I, I may like it, I may not like it, but he's everywhere. And Paul says, no. Far above every rule, every authority, every power, far above all things that are seen and unseen in this age and in any age to come, sits Jesus. Jesus is the one who came from the Father, came, lived a life that we never could have lived, died the death that we should have died, but then was raised in power and is seated at the right hand of God. And Paul says, this is the thing that I want the eyes of your heart to see. Because I know you, Ephesians. I know you people in Colossae or Thessalonica or anywhere else that would have read Paul's circular letter. I know you people in Grand Rapids, Michigan in the year 2022. And you are going to get so distracted. You're going to be overcome with worry and anxiety. You're going to worry about your governments. You're going to worry about elections. You're going to worry about court rulings. You're going to worry about this, that, and the other thing. I know you. You're going to worry about the natural disasters that come into your world that affect your lives. Uh, you're going to worry about your dysfunctional families. You're going to worry about your dysfunctional churches. You're going to worry about your boss who doesn't seem to give a flying fig about you or anybody else. You're going to worry about all of these things. But Jesus, but Jesus is over all, above all ruler, above all power, above all authority, uh, above everything. There sits Jesus at the right hand of God, and you don't need to worry. Do you see him there high and lifted up, shining in the light of his glory? Do you realize that, that nothing that happens in this day or age can make a dent in his plan? Do you realize that you are secure both now and forever. Now, that doesn't mean that we're never going to suffer. That doesn't mean that life is not hard. That doesn't mean that the rulers and authorities of this age do not exert some power, some uh, ability to disrupt our lives. Of course not. And if you read the Scriptures carefully, you realize that, that suffering is a part of our lives, and it's part of how God uh, means to shape us and mold us and make us more into His image. But ultimately, the message of the Scriptures is that Jesus has triumphed. He is the victor. He is the one that has been raised from the dead as the victor over the grave and is now seated at the right hand of God. And Paul says, I want you to see it. I want you to know it. I want you to believe it. I want you to live it out. And this is where Paul then goes secondly. And you see this in the overall structure of, of the book. In 
the rest of 1 to 3, chapters 1 to 3, we're going to be focusing on exactly how Jesus is the victor. So uh, next week, I think, uh, we will be looking at 2, 1 to 10, you know, Jesus is the victor over death. Then in 11 to 20 of chapter 2, we're going to see how Jesus is uh, the victor over the disunity of the world and how he unites us together. So we're going to hear about those things. But then in chapters 4 to 6, we're going to see how it is that we live this out. And Paul is very intent on that even here. You remember in verse 15, he said, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this submission to the fact that Jesus is uh, the ruler over all. He is the victor. But then also, your, your love for all the saints. And he begins then to talk about the work of the church. He put all things under his feet, this is verse 22, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the church, which is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now, this is incredible stuff, uh, incredible stuff for the 21st century because my guess is that, well, let me just put it this way. I mean, we, we live in a world where the church uh, is, is not seen in always in a favorable light. Uh, if you were to ask the average person uh, what is an evangelical, uh, they might say evangelicals are against abortion, they're against pornography, they're against gay rights, they're against universal health care, against evolution, against immigration. Uh, there's this characterization of just a backwards group of people that are against uh, a lot of these different things. But Paul has a very different idea of the church. Now, what does he mean when he talks about the church? Uh, on the one hand, uh, he, he does have in mind local churches. One of the things that's really interesting about Paul is when he writes these letters, he writes them to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Thessalonica, to the church at Colossae. So, so Paul's vision of the church is a, a community of people that's been brought around these faith claims of Jesus Christ who have submitted themselves and are under, surrendered to the reality of who Jesus is, but they are rooted in a locale. And they are for that place. They are people that are united together, not just by the esoteric, but also by the, the practical and the local. There, there's a real rootedness to who the church is. But there is then also this sense in which the church is the, the body of Christ. It's interesting as we go forward in Ephesians, Paul talks about the church in a number of different ways. In Ephesians 2, I think he uses about three different metaphors for the church. He talks about the church as the, the body of Christ, which he does here. He returns to that. He talks about it as a building, uh, which Christ is the cornerstone. He talks about it as a, the household of God, you know, a family. 
He talks about it as an empire where we have citizenship. In chapter 5, he talks about the church in terms of the bride of Christ, Christ being the bridegroom. So Paul talks about the church in a number of different ways. And part of what he wants the, the people to see is that the, the church is not less than its local expression, but it's also more than that. It, it is the actual manifestation of God Himself throughout the world. Uh, it, it is the hands, the feet, it is the extension, or to use the words that Paul uses here, the church is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now, that is an incredibly positive view of the church. That is an incredibly uh, optimistic view. That is an incredibly uh, motivating, empowering view of the church. Part of it, Paul is saying, is that we have, uh, in verse 19, the greatness of the power towards us or in us who believe according to the working of His great might. So, what Paul is envisioning here with the church, and now this is the church local and what we would call the church universal, is that it would be the outworking of God on this earth. That it would be the ones who are the caretakers of His power, His power working through us in order to, to make the glories of Christ known in this world. Now, again, an incredibly positive view. And I recognize that that, that really challenges, especially I feel like in the U.S., much of what people view as the church. Now, we have to recognize and confess right away that the church uh, doesn't do this perfectly. Uh, the, the church has constantly made a hash of things, whether it's uh, back in the Crusades or whether it's in sort of the power abusive stuff that we have seen uh, more recently in the church. There, there are all kinds of ways that the church has made a hash of things. But it, I think Keller, uh, Tim Keller, uh, even uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, when they talk about the church and the mistakes that the church made, they, they would make the point that just because uh, various Christians or even various organizations under the guise or under the name of the church act poorly, it's no reason to reject the whole thing. What we, we, what we need when we see church leaders acting badly is not to get rid of the church, but we actually need church leaders and churches to lean even more into what it means to be the church. You know, to repent of the things that have characterized us poorly and, and to seek after, you know, the, having the eyes of our heart enlightened that we would truly love, uh, that we would truly show compassion, all of those different things. It's not we just get rid, throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we acknowledge where we're wrong and we lean into the glories that Paul is talking about here because it's in un Unmistakable, unmistakable uh, that, that Paul is saying that the church throughout this is the, 
manifestation of God in this world. So that is an incredible challenge to us. And the good news is that it is seen. You know, sometimes we get all the bad press, uh, but if you look throughout the world and if you really stop to think about it, you recognize that the glories of God are being uh, worked out. Just a couple of stories for you or examples on, uh, in, in, this, in this idea. Philip Yancey, a couple years ago, uh, wrote a book. Ooh, I'm losing the, the title of it right now, but it's uh, The Vanishing, Vanishing Grace, uh, and, and it has to do with the influence of the church. He, he shares a story in there. He says, the United Nations estimates that there are three million women and children are, are trafficked throughout the world. Um, but the church has been at the forefront of engaging and providing safety for these women and children. In India, Christians have led the way in embracing the Dalits, the formerly the untouchables, and other low castes by building schools and clinics to serve them. Millions from the lower castes have subsequently left the Hindu faith, which excludes them from its temples. They found a home among Christians. Thanks to such activity in other countries of the world, the word evangelical has a very different connotation than it does in the U.S. Here's how one person puts it. Evangelicals in the Middle East are thought of as people with the good news, the very definition of the word evangelical. They have been at the forefront of development, job training, human rights, religious freedom. They've been out in front in medicine and medical education at all levels. They're known to care for the poor. Hospitals and schools founded by missionaries rank among the finest in the Arabian Gulf states. There's a New York uh, Times journalist, Christoph, uh, Nicholas Kristoff. He was a winner of two Pulitzer Prize columnists, or prizes, uh, regular columnist for the New York Times. When John Stott, who was a vicar in the uh, Anglican Church, uh, who is also an author of many books, when he passed away, Here's what Christoph wrote about him. Mr. Stott didn't preach fire and brimstone on a Christian television network, but he was a humble scholar whose 50-odd books counseled Christians to emulate the life of Jesus, especially his concern for the poor and the oppressed, confront societal ills like racial oppression and environmental pollution. Evangelicals are disproportionately uh, likely to donate their income or a percentage of their income to charities, mostly church-related. More important, evangelicals are disproportionately likely to go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, or genocide. And they are some of the bravest people that you will ever meet who truly live their faith. I'm not particularly religious myself, says Christoph, but I stand in awe of those that I've seen risking their lives in this way. It sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. This past week, Brother Andrew passed away. Some of you know Brother Andrew, who was famous for uh, sometimes called God's smuggler, uh, getting Bibles behind the Iron Curtain and just various things, open door ministries. There was one story talking about his life, I believe it was in 1992, uh, where in the Middle East there was a Hamas group 
who were, you know, obviously against the, uh, the, the Jewish people, and they were cast out, huddled on a mountain, and he, he took the, he took tents and blankets and everything to this group who were their enemies because he said it's a, it's a Matthew 25 moment where we go and we clothe those who hate us. Um, and, and, and all over the place, there are example after example of the power of the church to go and to move in places where other people wouldn't conceive of. Now, again, do we have it all right? Uh, of course not. Do we make mistakes? Absolutely. I, I mean, the gospel tells us that we're always going to make mistakes, that, that we're far worse off than we think. But it's not these good works that, that prove that we are worthy before God. Rather, it's the other way around, that a group of people who are as much misfits as us, a group of people who are weak and, and who can hardly even go forward on our own, that us as a group of people could make such a, uh, an outlandish, outrageous impact in the world speaks to the power of God that is powerfully working in us. And it's not only in these things abroad, it's in the everyday here. I, I read this week, um, there was a, a book recently released called uh, Of Boys and Men, talking about uh, just the, the state of manhood in the current time. I didn't read the book, I, I read a review. Uh, but one of the, the stats there is that most men in our society cannot name uh, for sure, three close friends. Uh, many, I think it was up to 15% uh, in our society, cannot name one close friend. And, and the church is a place where we, we find that community in, in a world that is disenfranchised, in a world that is fragmented in so many ways. We see just such a different community coming together. You're going to experience a little bit of that uh, this Sunday morning. We experience it when we come together on Wednesday nights. We experience it when people are going to go and help out Peggy West because she needs help. We experience it in the bringing of meals. We experience it in all these things. And again, it's not because we're great people because we know we're not. Amen? We know we're not. But it's the power of Christ that works in us. It's this vision of a God who sits above all. It's this vision that then animates us to, to be a community that draws people towards it. Here's how one person puts it. The very ordinary ways in which the church, uh, the, the church exercises its influence. In the kingdom of God, there is... There is life and peace. There's reconciliation. There's forgiveness. There's outrageous love and kindness. And there is plenty for everyone. How do we know the kingdom of God is here? That the awesome presence of God is among us? We know because there is laughing and there is singing. There are warm greetings and big hugs. There are children hanging around, having a good time, maybe even running in the foyer. I don't advise that, but it might happen. 
There are, uh, there are conversations that bring joy, comfort, relief. There are songs sung that celebrate King Jesus and His great salvation. When we gather for a meal, we don't cluster together in groups only with those who are like us, but we sit and share with strangers and hear their stories. Because in the kingdom of God, there are no strangers, only friends and neighbors. These are the signs that the kingdom of God is here. Brothers and sisters, I commend to you the ordinary life of the gospel, being with one another, sharing, weeping, crying, laughing, being a friend uh, in this, because this is what it means that we are filled with the faith that is in the Lord Jesus and the love that we have for all the saints. You notice Paul puts that all in there. He doesn't just say love for the saints. Love for all the saints, regardless of their race, background, uh, ethnic, you know, culture, their socioeconomic status, whatever it might be. Uh, there is a love that indicates we know that we have been loved by Christ. As we come to the table this morning, we celebrate this very truth. Jesus Christ, that gave himself as a ransom for many, has been raised up. And is now seated above all principalities, powers, thrones, and dominions. And He feeds us so that His power towards us might work out uh, in all of our lives. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank You for this Word. We thank You for what it means for us. Lord, we, uh, we're so grateful to have been prayed over today. To know that this is your desire for us, uh, that the Apostle Paul wants us to see with the eyes of our heart that we would not be distracted, uh, the great truths of who, who Christ is uh, and the great power that is ours as we are united to Him by faith. Meet us, we pray, in this table. Strengthen our faith, uh, and we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.